Chapter Twenty, Part Two of Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Chapter Twenty, Part Two General Reflections. The trouble with the Liberal Party in Britain is that it leaks at the top. No sooner does a commoner do good work in Parliament and acquire a position as a Liberal member than he gets a bee in his bonnet. He or his wife and family longs to leave the ranks of the people and receive a title. I know several worthy men who have deliberately sacrificed their proud position as English gentlemen which is equal to any, to enter the ranks of aristocracy at the very lowest round of the ladder, some of them not even upon the ladder at all. By so doing, they necessarily admit the idea of rank and confess themselves the inferiors of all the other degrees of the class. These men insult the people from which they sprung by leaving them for the aristocracy. By accepting rank, the newly made baronet gives an implied pledge that his earnest liberalism is at an end. He is simply bribed, and henceforth is a muzzled dog. If not, he is a traitor not only to his own class, but to the aristocracy he seeks to enter upon false pretenses. By this sad aberration, the liberal party is constantly denuded of its able men. A man born in the aristocracy may be respected. A commoner who accepts a new title rarely is, although he may be excused. The query of the old duke, although not upon everybody's lips, is in everybody's thoughts. How shall I treat these new men? They are not noblemen, and they have ceased to be gentlemen. Not until the liberal is far too proud of his manhood to place himself beneath any order whatever, Will the Liberal Party hold assured sway, or even very greatly deserve to do so? The Republican member could not be paid to change his name. The monarchist will generally pay largely in service for the ornamental appendage. The one is entirely free from all temptations to sacrifice conviction for social position. For this, no government or official can influence in the slightest degree." The other must be possessed of rare independence indeed to escape the corrupting social influences which radiate from monarchical institutions. If we compare the Senate with the House of Lords, the most prejudiced mind must surely grant the palm to the Republican Assembly, for such a spectacle as a body constituting the landholding class, so completely as to be justly called the House of Landlords, legislating upon land in its own interest, is not seen elsewhere. It is not a rare act for a member of the House in Washington to rise and beg to be excused from voting because his personal interests are affected by a bill. Several presidents of national banks have done so when financial questions were being voted upon. We do not recall the name of any member of the Lords who has refrained from voting upon measures connected with the land. Even the bishops in that assembly may confidently be expected to vote against their coming expulsion instead of asking to be excused to act as public legislators to promote personal ends. 
I have spoken strongly of the Supreme Court and of the courts in general of the nation. The judiciary of the United States is pure and able and possesses the confidence of the people to a degree equal to that justly reposed by the British people in their judiciary. Thirty years ago, a few foreign-born citizens, known as the Tweed Ring, succeeded in casting such reproach upon two of the city judges of New York, as in the eyes of foreigners to envelop the entire judiciary of the country in a haze of suspicion and at a later date a disreputable railway owner long since dead corrupted another city judge even to this day i find lingering traces of the bad effects of this in britain it is necessary to explain to them that new york city being then really controlled by the foreign-born vote it was sometimes easy to elect as city judges very unsuitable material these however it must be noted were only city magistrates their decisions being subject to appeal to higher courts the discovery of this corrupt ring led to prompt corrections the leader was required to surrender his property imprisoned in the penitentiary and died there others fled abroad and lived in hiding had the people failed to rise and throw party considerations to the winds and sweep away the disgrace, we should indeed have reason to doubt the wisdom of popular institutions. On the contrary, they rose in mass and, incensed beyond measure, swept the rascals from place. Since then, the city government has been comparatively pure. Using the fact that three city magistrates in this foreign city of New York had become the tools of a corrupt ring as a foundation for general charges, I have heard people announce that in America the courts were not pure. This has no greater foundation than what I have stated. A moment's reflection will convince one that it would have been impossible for the commercial and manufacturing interests of the nation to develop so enormously were there not in every state pure and incorruptible tribunals to render justice between man and man. The truth is that in settled parts of the Republic, courts of justice are quite as pure as those in corresponding situations in Britain, and justice is much more cheaply and more expeditiously administered. In the semi-civilized territories of the West, where society is beginning to crystallize, there are, of course, all kinds of courts, from the rude but generally strictly just vigilance committee to the improvised judge, who sits upon the plain pine board bench in his shirt sleeves and has not the strictest ideas of either judicial dignity or integrity. It is of this kind of court that the story is told, of the trial of a man charged with the most heinous of all crimes there, the stealing of a horse, the murder of a man in a street row being insignificant in comparison. The judge asked him if before sentence of death were pronounced he had anything to offer to the court. "'Well, judge,' said he, "'I haven't much, but if a hundred dollars would see me through, I think the boys—' looking appealingly around, would raise it for me. And they would have done so, no doubt, had the judge's words been meant as the prisoner construed them. In due time, all this will pass away, and the courts now in the wilds of Dakota or Montana will develop into tribunals as free from suspicion as those which elsewhere grace the settled districts. 
if a man knowing both countries well had unfortunately to seek justice through the courts he would certainly elect to bring his action upon this side of the atlantic the verdict would be much more promptly rendered and the cost much less in neither land i make bold to say would there arise in his mind the faintest suspicion of the honor of the judges who weighed and decided his cause according to the law and the evidence and this i submit is much to say for both branches of the english-speaking race throughout this book my readers will have noted how frequently reference is made to the conservative nature of the political institutions of the republic and to the resulting trait of deep and abiding indisposition upon the part of the people to enter upon novel measures or untried fields of legislation lord salisbury's sagacious mind has evidently been struck with all this the close and critical study of the constitution and the various branches of the american government which it has been necessary for me to undertake in the preparation of this book has not shown me what i did not know before but i feel bound to say that in a much fuller and clearer light the conservative character of these have been presented to me and per contra that the essentially democratic structure of the british constitution with which i have naturally compared the former in my progress has been shown to me in a remarkable degree the political power of the non-elective monarch being of the past although the social power is demoralizing upon the character of the people in every respect of its operation we are face to face with a government without fixity of tenure and consequently without power as against popular tumult exposed to every passion of the populace as long as the populace did not elect the members of parliament these were not compelled to give way to their temporary moods but now when manhood suffrage practically exists these members are the servants of the masses and will conform to their every whim as a staunch republican with infinite confidence in the voice of the people one who advocates the election of judges by universal suffrage and who knows no civil rights which he is not perfectly willing to subject to the will of the majority i warn the people of britain that the masses are prone to be carried away temporarily by passion and that it may be found necessary to interpose some shield between the sudden fierce outburst of an excited population and the officials subjected to the strain not to thwart the sober judgment of the people but to give it time to judge this the republic has in the fact that its executive and legislative officials are not subject to removal by the popular voice they serve their appointed term and they submit for approval or disapproval the results to their masters with fixity of tenure in office a senate of which only one-third is changeable each two years and a supreme court composed of judges approved by the senate and holding office for life and retiring upon a pension by whom all legislative acts are subject to be approved or rendered nugatory our conservative friends will have no difficulty in reaching the conclusion that so far as security and sound government go they have strangely missed the truth that the most democratic and ultra-republican community upon earth is much to be envied by the unfortunate supporters of an antiquated monarchical system which new conditions have robbed of all its virtues leaving behind only forms bereft of power 
to prevent liberty from degenerating into license popular tumult from overthrowing governments or to prevent the peaceful enjoyment of property from being ruthlessly disturbed i speak thus earnestly because i was a sad witness from an advantageous standpoint of the supreme weakness of the government in regard to the late egyptian war and especially of its virtual abdication of authority in committing to a man wholly unsuited to perform delicate tasks the issue of peace or war in the soudan not because he was in the judgment of the cabinet the best agent but because a whiff of manufactured popular opinion seemed for a moment to demand the appointment in like manner responsibility for the soudan has been disclaimed because the popular opinion demanded it i speak thus not of any one government or another liberal or conservative the evil is in the system in the republic no similar weakness is discernible the government is secure and can consequently afford to do not what is popular at the moment but that which will from its good results become popular by and by some of my radical friends may esteem this strange doctrine for a republican to preach but such are yet to learn that the equality of the citizen in a state is the surest antidote for violent revolutionary measures and brings about in many ways deep and universal solicitude for calm orderly administration the privileges enjoyed by the masses are in their estimation far too precious to be disturbed the republic has seldom elected a popular orator and never elected a public agitator as president believe me the masses are only revolutionary when deprived of equality here is the record of one century's harvest of democracy one the majority of the english-speaking race under one republican flag at peace two the nation which is pledged by act of both parties to offer amicable arbitration for the settlement of international disputes three the nation which contains the smallest proportion of illiterates the largest proportion of those who read and write four the nation which spends least on war and most upon education which has the smallest army and navy in proportion to its population and wealth of any maritime power in the world five the nation which provides most generously during their lives for every soldier and sailor injured in its cause and for their widows and orphans six the nation in which the rights of the minority and of property are most secure seven the nation whose flag wherever it floats over sea and land is the symbol and guarantor of the equality of the citizen eight the nation in whose constitution no man suggests improvement whose laws as they stand are satisfactory to all citizens nine the nation which has the ideal second chamber the most august assembly in the world the american senate ten the nation whose supreme court is the envy of the ex-prime minister of the parent land eleven the nation whose constitution is the most perfect piece of work ever struck off at one time by the mind and purpose of man according to the present prime minister of the parent land twelve the nation most profoundly conservative of what is good yet based upon the political equality of the citizen thirteen the wealthiest nation in the world 
14. The nation first in public credit and in payment of debt. 15. The greatest agricultural nation in the world. 16. The greatest manufacturing nation in the world. 17. The greatest mining nation in the world. Many of these laurels have hitherto adorned the brow of Britain, but her child has wrested them from her. The precocious youth may be tempted to paraphrase Prince Henry's boast to his father and say to the world, quote, England is but my factor, good my lord, to engross up glorious deeds on my behalf, and I will call her to so strict account that she shall render every glory up. But please do not be so presumptuous, my triumphant Republican. I do not believe the people of Britain can be beaten in the paths of peaceful triumphs, even by their precocious child. Just wait till you measure yourself with them after they are equally well equipped. There are signs that the masses are about to burst their bonds and be free men. The British race, all equal citizens from birth, will be a very different antagonist to the semi-serfs you have so far easily excelled. Look about you and note that transplanted here and enjoying for a few years similar conditions to yours, the Briton does not fail to hold his own and keep abreast of you in the race, nor do his children fail either to come to the front. Assuredly, the stuff is in these island mastiffs. It is only improper training and lack of suitable stimulating nourishment to which their statesmen have subjected them that renders them feeble. The strain is all right, and the training will soon be all right too. Much has been written upon the relations existing between Old England and New England. It is with deep gratefulness that I can state that never in my day was the regard, the reverence of the child land for the parent land, so warm, so sincere, so heartfelt. This was inevitable whenever the pangs of separation ceased to hurt and the more recent wounds excited by the unfortunate position taken by the mother during the slaveholder's rebellion were duly healed. It was inevitable as soon as the American mind became acquainted with the past history of the race from which he had sprung, and learned the total sum of that great debt which he owed to his progenitor. It is most gratifying to see that the admiration— the love of the American for Britain is in exact proportion to his knowledge and power. It is not the uncultivated man of the Gulch who returns from a visit to the old home filled with pride of ancestry and duly grateful to the pioneer land which in its bloody march towards civil and religious liberty quote, through the long gorge to the far light hath won its path upward and prevailed, end quote. It is the Washington Irvings, the Nathaniel Hawthorns, the Russell Lowells, the Adamses, the Dudley Warners, the Wentworth Higginsons, the Edward Atkinsons, the men of whom we are proudest at home. Thus, in order that the Republican may love Britain, it is only necessary that he should know her. As this knowledge is yearly becoming more general, affection spreads and deepens. So much for the younger land's share of the question. And now, what are we to testify as to the feelings of the older land toward its forward child? My experience in this matter covers twenty years, in few of which I have failed to visit my native land. 
I had a hard time of it for the first years, and often had occasion to say to myself, and not a few times to intimate to others, that it was prodigious what these English did not know. I fought the cause of the Union year after year during the rebellion. Only a few of the John Bright class among prominent men, ever and ever our staunchest friends, believed what I often repeated, that, quote, there was not enough of air on the North American continent to float two flags, end quote, and that the democracy was firm and true. When the end came and one flag was all the air did float, these doubters declared that the immense armies would never disband and retire to the peaceful avocations of life. How little these ignorant people knew of the man who fought for their country. They were soon surprised upon this point. I had to combat upon subsequent visits the general belief in financial circles that it was absurd to hope that a government of the masses would ever think of paying the national debt. It would be repudiated, of course. The danger passed like the first. Then followed prophecies that the greenback dodge would be sanctioned by the people. That passed, too. But well do I remember the difference with which I was received and listened to after these questions had been safely passed and the Republic had emerged from the struggle, a nation about to assume the front rank among those who had disparaged her. I fear the governing classes at home never thoroughly respected the Republic and hence could not respect its citizens until it had shown not only its ability to overwhelm its own enemy, but to turn round upon France and with a word drive the monarchical idea out of Mexico. And then it will be remembered that it called to account its own dear parent, who in her official capacity had acted abominably when her own child was in a death struggle with slavery, and asked her to please settle for the injury she had inflicted. This was for a time quite a staggering piece of presumption, in the estimation of the haughty old monarchy, but nevertheless it was all settled by an act which marks an epoch in the history of the race and gives to the two divisions of the Anglo-Saxon the proud position of having set the best example of the settlement of international disputes by peaceful arbitration which the world has yet seen. From this time forth it became extremely difficult for the privileged classes of Britain to hold up the Republic to the people as a mournful example of the folly of attempting to build up a state without privileged classes. Their hitherto broad charges now necessarily took on the phase of carping criticism. America had not civil service. It turned out all its officials at the beginning of every administration. Well, America got civil service, and that subject was at an end. Then the best people did not enter into political life, and American politicians were corrupt. But the explanation of the first part of the charge, which is quite true as a general proposition, is, as I have shown, that where the laws of a country are perfect in the opinion of a people, and all is going on about to their liking, able and earnest men believe they can serve their fellow men better in more useful fields than politics, which, after all, are but means to an end." oh how dreadful don't you know said a young would-be swell to a young american lady how dreadful you know to be governed by people you would not visit you know 
probably was the reply and how delightful don't you know to be governed by people who wouldn't visit you all of the indictments against the republic have about disappeared except one and that will soon go as the cause is understood for international copyright must soon be settled end of chapter twenty part two general reflections